reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. All right. Well, good morning. And uh, I want to thank you so much for um, last Sunday inviting me, Andreas, and Benji to your guys' potluck. We felt so welcomed, and I was so grateful to get to know some of you guys. Uh, so that was, that was really nice uh, before I came and preached to you to get to know some of you. Um, and so I also want to just thank you for uh, letting me come and preach here, and thank you for the words from Romans. It's actually used twice in my sermon, so hopefully you don't get bored of it. Um, and so I'm exp- excited to preach on uh, this important topic. So would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 11 to 22 today. I'll be continuing this Christmas series that was started last week by Pastor Randy uh, in the overarching theme of the difference that Jesus makes. Uh, my focus this morning from Ephesians will be the peace that Jesus brings. Um, and when I saw the title and passage, I thought it was very fitting for the time we live in now, considering the hostility that is going on in the fallen world that we live in that Randy actually mentioned last week with the wars and rumors of wars that we see happening. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember you were, that you were at one time, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can come and gather here freely. Thank you for those that you have gifted for the building up of your church and bless them, Lord, as, we use, as they use their gifts in service to you. Open our eyes to see the beauty of your word and how through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can have peace everlasting. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you have ever been anxious or scared? For myself, when I was younger, I was really afraid of spiders. This very rational fear, called arachnophobia, was hard for me to deal with because, well, spiders are everywhere. So, um, I know most spiders in Canada, 
they can't kill me, but they're just so creepy. They send shivers down my spine. Okay, you may have noticed I'm still afraid of spiders. But I can remember a few times at work when I was just minding my own business when all of a sudden a spider comes, he peeks his ugly little head out from behind a box, and I just could not focus until he was either far from me or dead. So with the screwdriver I had in my hand, went up to him, and I slingshot him across the room. Finally, I was able to continue in peace. I realize that my fear is a bit more irrational than most, but maybe there are other fears, real fears, that just never leave your mind. Maybe you have been worried about something that's completely out of your control. You lack peace, you lack the assurance of whatever that problem may be. Maybe you're worried about your financials, whether you'll have enough money for the rent or mortgage, whether you'll have enough money to afford groceries or gas for the next week. Maybe you're anxious about your life at home. It could be that maybe you think you're an inadequate husband or wife, or maybe even in inadequate parents. Or is it maybe deeper than that yet? Maybe it's worries about whether God is even real and you don't even know where to go for help. Maybe it's questions and doubts on how you know that you are really saved. These questions plague us. They're the things that keep us up at night, wide-eyed, staring at the ceiling. And if we let them, they can ruin our lives, our families, and worst of all, our relationships with God. This morning, as I already mentioned, I want to talk about the peace that can be found in our lives. This peace will help us to answer all these questions and many more that we may have. This peace can only be found in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and was bought at an extreme price, as peace so often is. So let's explore this together in Ephesians. We can see three different aspects of peace in this passage, the first being lack of peace without Jesus. You always have to start with the bad news, right? This can be found in verses 11 to 12, where Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is reminding the Ephesians of their former lives outside of Christ. They were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision or the Jews, which was a derogatory term used to talk about anyone who was not a Jew. Circumcision is very significant to the Jews. It was physical proof of the covenant God had made uh, with Abraham, the father of the entire Jewish nation in Genesis 17. This physical reminder to the Jews included the promise of land, a multitude of descendants, which would include kings, and that his descendants would be a blessing. So this covenant was made well before Paul had ever written this and was still going strong at that time, considering they were still making fun of the Gentiles by calling them the uncircumcised. Basically, the Ephesians were outside of God's family in the eyes of the Jews, and they all knew it. Paul continues this thought by saying, remember how you were separated from Christ? Meaning that they were completely outside of salvation with absolutely no hope or peace. 
Remember how you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel? This commonwealth of Israel, which the Ephesians and us today are alienated from, is salvation through Jesus. So when we are saved, we become partakers of the commonwealth. John 4.22 says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Paul goes on saying, Remember that you are strangers to the covenants of promise, referring to the past promises of the Old Testament. Remember how you were without hope, and maybe we can also say without peace, because you were without God in this world, just like everyone and anyone who is outside a relationship with Christ. Do you not remember all that? We can all relate to the Ephesians here because no one is born a Christian. We have all at one time been separated from Christ. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is without sin or excuse. Paul reminds us of our past because without doing so, we cannot appreciate what we now have and we may even take it for granted and think we have done something that makes us worthy to be saved. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Psalm 130, verse 3. The simple answer to that is no one. I think we can see Paul's point here. No Jesus, no peace. Martin Luther. This name carries some weight. He was the man who started the Protestant Reformation in Germany on October 31st, 1517. This Reformation is where our churches actually stem from. It's where Mennonites come from. Before this, though, Martin Luther was just a man in Germany whose parents wanted him to become a lawyer. This was the time when the Catholic Church was the only church, so his family was very Catholic. One day, as Luther was walking home in a thunderstorm of all things, a lightning bolt crashed directly in front of him, sending him straight to the ground. He was so scared that he called out to a saint for help, and like any logical man, said that if he was saved, he would become a monk. Not just any monk, though. He ended up surviving that storm and joined the strictest order there was. He was determined to find acceptance to God through his works. Luther would starve himself, sleep outside in the cold, nearly freezing to death. He would pray all the time with empty prayers. He constantly tortured himself to show God that he feared him. These monks were part of the Catholic Church, and so they did a confessional time where they would go before the top-ranking priests and confess their sins. You might think to yourself, can monks really get into much trouble at a monastery? Well, you're probably right, so most of them wouldn't spend more than a couple of minutes in these confessionals. But Luther was different. He would spend hours in these confessionals, confessing every last little thing that he had done before God and against God. The priest would get restless with Luther in these confessionals, but no matter what Luther did, he knew it was not enough. He claims in one of his books that he hated God because of this lack of peace that he had. We can see so clearly from Martin Luther's life exactly what Paul says in these two verses. 
Luther understood that sin is so abhorrent to a holy God, and he stood no chance before him. Without Jesus in our lives, we have no peace and no salvation. We can try everything to get right with God. We can become a monk, live a torturous life for God, but that just won't do it. Without God and Jesus' sacrifice, we will be sheep without a shepherd. We will be lost and will never have any hope or peace. We will continue to be separated from Christ and all that he brings. Now that we can see our lack of peace without Jesus, we can dig deeper into our passage and see where there is peace through Jesus' sacrifice. Let's read verses 13 to 18 again. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In our Savior, Christ Jesus, we who at one time were far off and separated from God, we have been brought near. Not by our good works, not by anything that we have done. We have been brought near through Christ's blood that was shed on that Calvary cross for us. This is good news for all of us here. But maybe someone here is still outside of Jesus' peace that he offers. If you do not repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then the reality is that you are destined for hell, just like I was and just like we all were before we had that relationship with Christ. This is the only way to salvation. This is the only way to peace. That is to repent, turn from the past sins that you loved, and believe that Jesus came and lived the sinless life that we could not. He went willingly to the cross to cover our sins. He died the death that you and me so justly deserve. Not only that, but he was placed in a borrowed tomb and after three days, he rose to life again, just as he claimed he would do. Now, if you place your faith in Jesus, his life will cover your sins, and you will be forgiven by God and seen as perfect. He is the payment that you need to enter heaven. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that his followers are called to boldly proclaim. Paul, continuing on, makes it expressly clear that in Christ, the Gentile and Jew are one. This is what he means every time he says, made us both one, or created one man in place of the two, and reconcile us both to God. And he ends it off with, this is how he makes peace between us. 
we can see this same thing in Paul's letter to the Galatians where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There was a lot of hostility between Jews and Gentiles at this time. And there's a lot of hostility now between so many different people. But Christ came and made us all one by his cross. Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. No one man or woman is greater than another in the eyes of God. Christ has formed us now into one body, and that is the church. As a church, we come together, different people, but all unified in one thing, and that is Christ's Christ peace through his cross. There should be no hostility between us as long as we're all one in Christ. There is a problem we have with God, though, or I should probably say a problem that God has with us. The problem is, how can sinful man be made right with a holy God? We can't on our own. God demands perfection. This is the only way to get to heaven and not spend eternity in God's wrath. But we all know that is impossible. That is why Jesus had to die. And as I explained before, through the gospel, we are made perfect. And through this gospel, Jesus brings peace between sinful man and holy God. That's why Paul says, he has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. Paul also says in Romans 5 verses 1 to 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Payment was necessary for our sins. We have been given a debt that has been passed down from generation to generation, a sin debt that no one mortal man has been able to pay off. This is why we die. The wages of sin is death, after all. But praise God, the story does not end there, because continuing that exact same verse is this. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Peace is offered, bought, and paid for. I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger with Martin Luther. He was trying to earn God's peace by working for it in that monastery, but he never found it. One of the priests in that monastery suggested that he should go to Rome and see all that the hub of the Catholic Church had to offer. He thought just maybe it would help with the issues he was having, which was lacking peace. So he went, and he was appalled by what he found there. People were paying for what they called indulgences. These were basically certificates that you could buy to help your dead relatives get out of purgatory 
which is a made-up place by the Catholics that you supposedly go to to pay off your sins after you die before you get into heaven. With this payment, you not only helped your dead relatives, but you also do a good deed, which is a plus for you in the Catholic Church. But, with, but this was all just to fund the Catholic Church in their large, extravagant building projects. Luther knew this could not be right. He returned to Germany, where he was now the professor of Bible at a very prestigious university. He taught through multiple books of the Bible, all while not even being saved himself, and still thinking he needed to work to be saved. One day, in his study, he was meditating on Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that says, For in the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's a quote from Luther on exactly what happened that day. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous shall live by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by his faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther was searching in all the wrong places for justification, and now he found it in God's word. He came to the realization that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is what we need to know from this passage too. Jesus saves us, and it is not by works. I hope I've made that clear. <laughs> and this saving faith in Jesus brings us a peace that surpasses all understanding. It brings us as heirs into the promises of God. We can partake of this peace if we just repent and believe. Now, Paul starts to wind down this topic on peace in these final verses, and we see his tone change a little bit here. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus, being, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this now brings us to the third aspect of peace in this passage, and that is peace through church unity and growth. The starting of so then is significant here and why I said that Paul is starting to wind things down. These two words show that he is concluding what we have previously gone through. That's also evident when he says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
pointing to the first section of verses that we had looked at. Remember, Paul said, we are alienated from the commonwealth, strangers to the covenants of promise, and without hope. But now says that we are no longer these strangers and aliens. Like a master teacher, he references back and says, that is no longer who you are, but then says, you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Pointing to the second set of verses. Paul does not miss a beat here. He is now showing how all of this comes together. We are citizens of God's kingdom when we trust and believe in the blood that was shed for us. As he continues, he tells us what this household looks like. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles obviously being the apostles of Jesus plus Paul. And he does not say the apostles and the prophets, which makes some people wonder, is this the apostles of the Old Testament, or sorry, the prophets of the Old Testament? Is this the prophets of Paul's day? Whichever you believe, uh, or some people also think it's both actually. Uh, Whatever you think, we need to know this, that they have all laid this foundation of the household of God. The apostles, the prophets of the Old Testament, and the prophets of Paul's day all had the one same message of the gospel. A foundation of a building does not change, no matter the renovations done to the structure. And the foundation laid by these men of old is still the foundation we're building on to this very day. Our structures just may look a little bit different over time. But below this foundation yet is the cornerstone. And, sorry, that holds the foundation and structure. And this is Christ Jesus. So now, on this cornerstone and foundation, God's holy temple is being built upon by us, by the early church, by the church of the 1600s, by the reformers. We have all been building on this structure into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And now peace enters the scene in all of this as well, because our cornerstone and foundation are, the sa- are all the same through the centuries. We can have church unity. Hebrews 12:14 says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Even if you worship different than I do, we can have peace and be unified knowing that our cornerstone and foundation are the same. And God's church is constantly growing and being built upon. The Catholic Church of Martin Luther's day, and really the Catholic Church of our day, they are not building on the same foundation. They're building 10 kilometers down the road. But Luther and so many others before him and after him have come back to this foundation. And we have continued to build God's temple together. I've heard about this church that is located in Rome. It's called the Basilica of St. Clement. It is a church that was built in the 12th century, which in and of itself is very cool to me, considering all our old buildings around here are at best two to 300 years old. But that is just the beginning. Under this 12th century church is the original Basilica of St. Clement, and it's dated roughly to the 4th century AD.
So you have a very large and extravagant church. Then under that, you have another church, which is actually quite large. But wait, there's more. Underneath the 4th century church, there is another structure that is said to have been a Roman cult temple from the 1st century. So at this point, you're 30 to 40 feet underground, and over top of you is not one, but two full-size churches. All these structures stand on one same foundation and cornerstone. Just like us as a church, we continue to build God's temple, and we can picture it like the Basilica of St. Clement. At the base is always Jesus. Then the teachings of the apostles and prophets. Then the church, which keeps building one on top of another, always building something slightly different, but always having the same base. Hebrews 3.4 says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So let's continue to work for God's kingdom as we build with one another. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has created us for good works, and these, while they do not save us, continue to add to the temple that is glorifying to God. We can see how Jesus' peace is part of every aspect of our lives. When it was not with us, we had nothing, and we were separated from God. We lacked peace without Jesus' sacrifice. Now, because of the peace through Jesus' sacrifice, we are brought into a right and good and peaceful relationship with other believers. And we are brought into a right and good and peaceful relationship with God. And through this same sacrifice, we are also brought peace through church unity and growth. We have only God to thank for all of this and for the sacrifice of Jesus that brings us this peace. We not only walked through this passage, but also saw how exactly this peace that Jesus brings was played out in one man's life. He was lost in searching for God in all the wrong places. He continually tried to justify himself through his works, but came up empty every single time. After he was saved, he then walked in Jesus' peace that comes from the one true saving gospel. He started to build upon Christ's church again and bring people back to what was forgotten and hidden by the Catholics by being the catalyst of the historical reformation. Luther was by no stretch a perfect man, and that was not my point. And that can also be seen in the history books. But he is such an extreme example of how Jesus' peace is played out in someone's life. Maybe some of you are still thinking about the questions I asked at the beginning of the sermon. And you're wondering how these three points seem to reconcile the money troubles I have, the relationship troubles I have, or the, or the questions about God. God is not a genie in a bottle that will just make these things magically go away. But I know that most of you know that. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Pray to God with thanksgiving, not with anger or rage. Tell God what you need. When we do this, our problems may not go away, but an unexplainable peace that comes only from God will guard your hearts and minds from all the troubles. And this is only done through Christ Jesus. This is what we have been talking about this whole time. Jesus' peace will permeate every aspect of your life. So you will lack nothing and you will look forward to one day being in God's kingdom where all our troubles will be washed away. Or there is Romans 5 verses 1 to 3, which we have already looked at a few times. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance. Because we are justified by faith in Jesus, we now have peace. Through this, we obtain access into his grace, which allows us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And when trials and sufferings come our way, just know that they produce endurance. And that the peace that Jesus brings is still with us. There are so many aspects to Jesus' peace that can be found in God's word. The, only, the one thing that they all have in common is that the gospel is at the center of it and that is where it all stems from. Without Jesus and his gospel, peace is absolutely unattainable. And we will be grasping at it for our entire lives. So let us remember that we are sinners that have been saved by Jesus' finished work on the cross and allow that to bring us peace that surpasses all understanding. I want to pray from Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. Will you bow with me? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.